Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They come up, came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and stuck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat him down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who shall it, whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple who he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. 
Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at that, at once, there came out blood and water. He who saw it was born witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen clothes with the spices, as it is burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been yet laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. The word of the Lord. We'll dismiss our school-aged kids to the back. And if you haven't already, I invite you to open your Bibles to uh, John chapter 19. This is a heavy day and a heavy text, and we debated whether or not to read the whole thing, to have the kids in here, um, but, you know, not to make any confusion about it, we are Jesus people, and we are Jesus people uh, for this very reason right here, um, that he died in our place. I like to preach the sermons that are kind of fun and joyous. I really do. Um, maybe you don't believe that. The last three weeks have been pretty heavy. And um, th th this is the other reason I like to walk through a, uh, a book of Scripture at a time, because in my flesh I would choose uh, the happy passages only and not wrestle with the difficult ones. And this is a heavy and difficult one. It's heavy as we remember the death of our Lord but can also be joyous as we cling to the hope that we have in him for a day where there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more injustice. 
Now, next week, Jason gets to preach the happy sermon. He gets to preach the Easter sermon. Jason, you should wear a suit. We should all dress up. It'd be Easter in November. Right. The hats and the flowers and the whole bit. Today, uh, we're looking at the penultimate life, uh, event in the life of Jesus. The ultimate, of course, would be his resurrection. And we've taken a few months uh, to look at this, uh, in this in the life of Jesus. Really, specifically, this last week in Jesus' life, we've been working on a few months. To remind you, Jesus rode into the town uh, in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And uh, they all met him there, and they cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna which means Messiah, save us. And he had several incredible teaching moments. He had a temple clearing, the fig tree, several more that uh, you would probably be familiar with. And then recorded, we see in John 13, we see him with a water basin and a towel washing disciples' feet, the scandalous humility. And after they had finished supper, they would have left and sang a hymn. Psalms 18, 118, we can read the hymn they sang. It's traditional after leaving the Last Supper. On the way to the garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, there have been many teaching opportunities. We talked some about those last, uh, last week. But John 14, the let not your heart be troubled. And John 15, abiding in the vine. And John 16, the promised Holy Spirit. And John 17, the high priestly prayer. And then scripture tells us that he went to the garden of Gethsemane and he prayed. And of course, we focused on that last week. Of course, you remember that it was in the garden that Jesus was betrayed by Judas and handed over to the religious leaders. And they interrogated him and they sent him back to Pilate. And Pilate didn't want anything to do with him. So he sent him to Herod. And from Herod, he goes back to Pilate. And that catches you up to the scripture we read today, to John chapter 19. And in reading the whole chapter you get a little bit of vision of what happened that day but you don't get a you don't get a whole lot of details about the cross from John and I think really that's uh for two reasons we'll get to those in the text John has a bit of a different account than the other synoptic gospels of the crucifixion one John was the only one that had firsthand experience he was there we see that he's there with his mother and sister and the other Mary. It's very straightforward and reads more like a history book than the other accounts. We don't see many emotions bleeding through John's accounts. Really just some fact-telling, getting straight to the point, like a, like a newspaper. And it feels a bit weird, I guess, just to read it that way. But I want to mention a few things as far as context, and then we're going to focus on really three of the things that Jesus said while on the cross. And again, this could be something that at length you could really spend a lot of time on. And my encouragement to you is that you do meditate on this text some this week. One of the reasons there's not much detail about the cross here is that crucifixions were very common. Of course, the uniqueness of this one is that it's the Son of God that's being crucified but this is why we don't get a whole lot of details in the bible about the scourging or the crucifixion mainly because john's audience in the first century knew this all too well most crucifixions in our in our kind of romantic way of thinking about it he's like on the countryside on this really high hill but you can go even see the place today and it's right next to a bus station where they think that he was likely 
that killed Golgotha. And it's just right outside of the city walls. And even John's account tells us that. Many people saw it because it was right outside the city. And this is just kind of the main thoroughfare going into the city. Can you imagine that this was a, a common practice that Rome would instill so that people would walk by and they would see the suffering. Normally they were crucified just above eye level, but close enough where the passersby could spit on those that are being crucified. And they would be reminded you should never turn against Rome because this could happen to you. This act of crucifixion was invented by the Persians. It was perfected by the Romans. It was such a painful way to die because it took days and days. Some records show that people hung on the cross uh, for nine days. It was so painful that it was against the law to actually kill a Roman citizen by crucifixion. It's where even today we get the word excruciating. Excruciating as it moved through the Latin literally means from the cross. It was painful. It was humiliating. And it was public. It would be like putting a beheading on YouTube so that everyone could see it. When Jesus was a child, there was a Jewish uprising that was squashed by the Romans, and they crucified almost 100 people as a result. Jesus, being a little boy at the time, likely would have seen that. When Spartacus went down, Rome crucified 6,000 men, and they lined them up on the road 120 miles long. Can you imagine? That's here to Monroe or further. All the while. They would strip them naked and nail them to the cross where they basically suffocated because they ran out of strength to breathe. History tells us sometimes they wanted the death to be prolonged so they would nail them to something similar to a wooden bicycle seat through their private area so they couldn't suffocate quickly. They had to sit there and bleed out. So gruesome. There's a few historical records of women being crucified. They didn't do this very often because it was so barbaric. So they would crucify them backwards so you wouldn't see their faces and their emotions as they died. And as you read this passage, you just can't be overwhelmed thinking that Jesus did all of that for me. Again, there's so many things that we could talk about. We could talk about the flogging. Just the flogging itself was just so painful. Many people didn't, didn't survive the flogging as they would take the cat of nine tails, this large whip. At the end of it, pieces, sharp pieces of bone. Historians tell us oftentimes during a flogging, you would see actual ribs flying through the air as they would puncture vital organs. Pilate seemed to do this as to appease the people. Pilate, you see, is just a man of fear. He's just afraid. So he's going to have him flogged because he didn't think Jesus did anything wrong. And he thinks that that might even appease the people, but it doesn't. And so there's Jesus on the cross. Now, if you read all the Gospels together, Jesus says seven things. It's kind of funny, too, as you, if you read, Pilate actually says seven different times as well. I don't think he did it. I don't think he's guilty. I don't want to kill him. I don't think seven times. And then Jesus says seven words from the cross. And we're not going to go through all of those. We typically read through those on our Good Friday service, just the seven things. But I want to focus, focus just on three that John's gospel records. 
The first is in verse 25, and it's Jesus' concern for his mother. Verse 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus where his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home, own home. It's alarming. You, you see John there. It's also alarming that you don't see the other disciples there. On the darkest moment of the life of Jesus, as he is moving even to this very place, we talked about this a little last week, he's drinking this bitter cup of wrath. All the sin that we've ever done against a holy God being stored up in this bowl or cup of wrath to be poured out onto us, and yet Jesus rescues us by taking this cup on our behalf. And while he's doing that, the other disciples aren't even there for moral support. You know, you can go through some tough things if you have someone by your side. It, it adds some resiliency to you. We tell our kids and we pray every day for our kids to have good Christian friends. So when they have to take a stand, at times they will, against the culture of the world and what it values, that they'll have friends to stand with. And Jesus had spent three years with these friends. He told them many times, I don't even call you strangers, but friends. I don't even call you strangers, but even family. And yet in the darkest hour of his life, they're nowhere to be found except for his mom, his aunt, the two Marys, and John. But the fact that John mentions this is such great encouragement to my heart. Jesus hanging on the cross moments from death, and he's concerned for his mom. It's an encouragement to see the attention and initiative in the heart of Jesus to look after his mom. It, it should be encouragement to you and me as well. Jesus promised us that he would take care of his family, not his physical family, but his spiritual family. You might remember this interaction that Jesus had between Jesus and the rich man where Jesus told the rich man to sell all that he has and to follow him. And the man turned away sad. And many other disciples seemed to turn away. And Jesus said, how hard will it be for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Matthew's account. And Peter said, see, we've left everything and followed you. Where will we go? And Jesus answered in verse 29, and everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit, inherit eternal life. Now, where in this life are we going to receive a hundred children and a hundred mothers? The answer is the church, the bride of Christ, the family of God. All these crumb-snatching kids running around, they're your kids too. When Jesus says to Mary, look on John as your son, and John, look on Mary as your mother, he's showing us how our needs are to be met when we have left everything to follow him. Paul would remind us in Acts 20, verse 28, that Christ purchased the church of God with his own blood. Therefore, one of the gifts that Jesus gave to us from the cross was the church, a loving and caring and sustaining and encouraging family beyond family. 
And it's a great encouragement to our faith that he illustrates the meaning of the church by, by the way he did in this relationship between John and Mary. You, you ever have requests that seem so silly, you're like, man, God doesn't care about this. I married a woman that sometimes prays for good parking spaces. And, and I laugh at that sometimes. You ever think God's just got too much on his mind to worry about what worries us? Too many things to deal with, to carry our burdens as well? And if this account tells us anything, it's that God's not too busy. Upholding the world with the power of his mighty right hand, yet still has all the time to invite us that are weary and heavy laden to come to him. To remind us in Philippians 4 to be anxious about nothing. But in everything, with prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And so that's what we do. Those of you in this very room that are heavy hearted. That are praying through something and you've been praying for a long time. Friends, don't give up. God's listening. He knows and he sees. The next thing that we see Jesus saying is recorded in verse 28. This is actually the fifth thing, if you look at the synoptic gospels, that he would say. Knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. I thirst. Because of shock value, a lot of times, if you're like me, I try to read this passage quickly because I want to get through it and get to the good stuff. But unless we realize and sit with and lament our own sin and what it caused, the good news is not as good a news as it could be. He says, I thirst. John is very concerned that the audience begins to connect the dots between what was happening and what had been prophesied. We read the Bible like it's always been this in this order, bound with leather and maps in the back. But that wasn't, of course, always the way the scripture John is referring to when it says there to fulfill the scripture as referring to Jesus often even refers to the Old Testament scrolls. They would have been in the scroll form and kept in the temple where they would gather daily to hear it read. So what's being fulfilled, this is so cool when you talk about the Word of God, was actually written, some of it a thousand years before, and it's being fulfilled right before their very eyes. One of the other reasons, I told you there were a few that I didn't think that John gives so much ink to the crucifixion is because if you go to Psalms 22, one of the Messianic Psalms, you would read almost a moment-by-moment account of what's taking place on the cross. It's a Messianic prophecy or a prophecy written hundreds of years, 600 years before it's actually happening. And it's written like it was the first eyewitness account, which is crazy. When that Psalm is written, crucifixion is even unheard of in Rome. 
And John wants us to recognize this. And here's a great reminder to us, friends. There's no other religious text on earth that predicts even one thing that its religious leaders will do in the future. Not one. Christianity, Christianity has nearly a thousand. The point John is making here with all this reference to fulfill scripture is that we would see once again that God the Father is not caught off guard here. Jesus hasn't been duped. He's still in charge of every moment. Even in his dialogue with Pilate. And Pilate gets angry with him. Won't you respond to me? Don't you see how much power I have? Pilate would say and Jesus says, the only power you have, bud, is because I've allowed you to have it. Why is this such a big deal to John? He mentions it half a dozen times even in this passage to fulfill scripture. Just on this very one day, 39, on this one specific day, 39 of the prophecies that were made hundreds and hundreds of years before were being fulfilled on this very one day. And the reason it's a big deal to John is because John's an evangelist. He's the writer of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, also the writer of Revelation. And his purpose in writing the gospel is clear. We'll talk about this some even next week. And John 20, verse 30 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is showing us God's sovereign plan in this so that those that would read it would put their hope and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. This happens several times. Look back in verse 24. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it will be. This was to fulfill scripture. They divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. That's amazing that the psalmist would know to such detail as to what shirt Jesus would be wearing as one that could not be torn because it was one piece of clothing. What's the point? John is trying to help us connect the dots that this was not some Jewish carpenter dying on a cross, that this is a very son of God. Crucifixion being such a normal thing in the Roman Empire of hundreds of People crucified every year. John is saying, this is a little different here, friends. This is the Messiah. The Jews would have been very familiar with Psalm and Psalm 22. And John was pointing out the fulfillment of the scripture. Of the prophecies filled on this very day. One, sometimes that we read at Christmas time or even on Good Friday is Isaiah 53. I had the privilege of teaching this to some of our teenagers a couple months ago. Isaiah writes, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The third and final thing that 
John mentions that Jesus said while hanging on the cross is in verse 30. Just before this, they took the jar of the sour wine and the sponge. Every, every Roman soldier carried in his little war kit this such a thing. This is for when they go uh, relieve themselves that they have something to wipe with. Early in Roman history, they would share wiping utensils and they all got sick. And so they invented this, this antiseptic, and it was just disgusting. When they had public bathrooms even around, they would have this little jar of vinegar with a sponge in it. So if you used the restroom, this is how you cleaned up. When Jesus says, I thirst, think of the horror of it. They take this and put it on a pole on a hyssop branch. There's so much, we could talk so much about even the hyssop branch. And they held it to his mouth. Disgusting and humiliating. There's the king of kings, the ruler of all things, the one who in the beginning opened his mouth and spoke everything into existence. The one that knitted even these soldiers together in their own mother's wombs. And here they are. Here we are, crucifying the Son of God. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. In Greek, the word is tetelestai. It literally means the completement of an assigned task or the fulfillment of one's obligation or even a debt paid in full. Remember in the garden where Jesus is praying that this cup be passed from him, but not his will. He yields his life to the Father's will. And we see that here, that he finished it. Lord, I don't want to do this. Is there any other way but the bitter cup, but not my will, but yours be done, Father. And when he says it is finished, this is what he is saying. The assignment is finished. The task is complete. And then notice, too, I like this, that it says that he gave up his spirit. Again, John trying to remind us that no one's duping the Son of God here. Remember, back a couple chapters, he's the one that raised Lazarus from the dead. You can't kill someone who has the power to raise the dead. They just keep raising themselves like some video game. So Jesus has to willingly give up his spirit. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So what? What what exactly is finished? I think the best illustration of this is the veil being ripped from top to bottom. Matthew 27 tells us that at the moment Jesus gave up his spirit, the temple veil was ripped from top to bottom. The temple veil was what separated the Holy of Holies with the rest of the temple. Historian Josephus tells us that this veil was no just average like sheer curtain. It was four inches thick. It was more like a temporary wall. In the temple, there were all these places in the Jewish temple that prevented you from getting closer to God. If you're not a Jew, you can't come through this gate. If you're not a man, then you have to wait here in this waiting room. 
And no one could go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was as it represented the dwelling spirit of Yahweh God. Only the high priest and only once a year, the veil was a clear reminder that everyone, to everyone, that because of their sin, they could not be in God's presence. And I love that at the moment of Jesus' death, this was not true anymore. Jesus' death provided a way for me and you to be reconciled back to God. Spiritually speaking, we're all born separated from God. But the good news this morning, church, is that Christ died to remove the separation. In Colossians 2, verse 13, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. By canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. I love that phrase. He set it aside, all the sin, all the wrong I'd ever done, all the sins of commission and omission, all the places that I should have showed up and I didn't, all the grace-filled words I should have said and I didn't, and all the things that I said against him or took his name in vain, all my stack and stacks of sin, Jesus said, I'll take that. And he takes it to the cross with him. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Isn't that just such a beautiful picture, church? Jesus Christ died for your sins and my sins that we might be reconciled to God through his death. Jesus is barred, barred so that we can be brought in. He's cast out so we can be brought near. He's neglected so we can be welcomed. He dies so we can find life. Do you feel the enormity of this? We grow stale to this and numb to this. The Romans would have really gotten a kick if they had some time-traveling machine to fast-forward a couple thousand years and that today we wear the cross. Their symbol of intimidation and excruciating pain, it it was the greatest threat that they had. And we wear it around our neck as jewelry. We put it up in our homes. And it's all because Jesus took a device that was meant for pain and execution. And he died on it and redeemed it. This is the beauty of the Christian faith. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is what's so beautiful about the Christian faith. The last thing that Jesus says is it's finished. I paid your debt, the righteous for the unrighteous. But it's so different than all the other world religions. If you study the last thing in Buddhist writings was instructions to strive without ceasing or to keep working harder and harder. The Muslim faith based around the same concept, you obediently work so hard on the pillars of faith and maybe you'll make it to heaven. But the last thing that Jesus says on the cross is not go do more, go strive harder, go work better. He says, I did it. I paid it because you couldn't. You don't have to keep striving. Just trust in me. The questions, church, is what do we do with this? The Bible clearly tells us that Jesus died to save us from our sins. 
The question this morning is whether Jesus is not whether or not Jesus was a sacrifice or a substitute or the Savior. The question is, is he your Savior? It's possible to understand and even believe in your head that Jesus did all the things and still not be part of his family. Good doctrine alone doesn't cover your sin. Only a relationship with Jesus does that. Only a surrendered heart is what we talked about last week does that. And Pilate is so interesting here to me. Close enough to smell the breath of the Son of God. But never a follower of Jesus. I even think he was a believer. He's certainly scared to death here. In verse 8, he goes back out. The people said, listen, if you don't crucify him, you're no friend of Caesar's. He comes back in. And he's scared to death. It says, translated in, in maybe in your Bible, exceedingly afraid. Because he knew Jesus wasn't just some Jewish carpenter caught up in some scheme. He was the son of God. Pilate wasn't angry or amused when he learned that Jesus made himself the son of God. He was afraid, more afraid of Jesus than ever. Pilate saw something in Jesus, even beaten and bloodied and spat upon, that made him think that it could be true that the man before him was more than a man. Again, seven times, Pilate made sure to tell everyone that would hear him that he thought Jesus was innocent, but because he gave into a spirit of fear, he never chose to surrender and follow Jesus. I think that same spirit of fear is alive today. I think it plagues a lot of people. I think it paralyzes us from moving, for obeying, for listening, for being obedient, from surrendering. Paul would remind Timothy, for God did not give us a spirit of fear. Any spirit of fear and anxiety doesn't come from God. It might come from the fear of man. Certainly that's alive in Pilate's life here. But because of fear, he never takes the final step. Close enough, again, to smell him. But never trust him. Friends, the question is, how do I become part of God's family? Scripture says it takes two things, repentance and faith. We're going to take communion in a minute. And this is the gift that God has given us that we would remember his death. He said, when you gather together, take it and remember my death. When we take the bread, we receive it with an expression of gratitude to him and we remember that he gave himself for us. And when we take the drink, we remember the gravity of our sins that held him to the cross and remember that you were the joy that was set before him so he endured the pain as worship. 
But friends, before we run to the cup, and if you're visiting with us today, you came on a heavy week for sure, but no apologies. Our entire faith is based around this one thing. This is why we do communion so often. Some pastor friends tell me, doesn't they just get routine to do it every week? I said, maybe, but I know my heart needs to remember the death of Jesus for me every week. The question, friends, is what are you going to do with Jesus? You can be like Pilate and out of fear, do nothing. We didn't even talk about Barabbas. The Jews had this custom where they would release one of their prisoners connected to their whole temple thing and the scapegoat of the Old Testament. And every year they would take someone who was guilty and they would release him. And so Pilate thinks he's going to be cute. He says, you know what? Let's call him guilty, but not actually punish him. Doesn't your law say? And so he takes the traitor, the insurrectionist, the robber, Barabbas, and puts the two up there. Wouldn't, who would you like to have released? This Jewish carpenter who's leading this small tribe of men to love other people? Or this traitor and robber, this terrorist? And what do they say? Give us Barabbas. So Barabbas went free and Jesus was crucified. And friends, we're all Barabbas. We're the robber, the one that robbed God. We're the traitor. We're the ones that have told God, you know what, God, not, not, your, not, not what you want, buddy. It's what I want. I want the glory. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I'm going to pray for us. Friends, please do not blow past this moment to get to lunch. I don't know what kind of emotions are going on in your own mind and heart. I know it was a heavy week for me just reading and rereading this text. Maybe you have a heart of repentance. You just confess to God. You pray to God, God, I haven't. I haven't been living the way you want me to live. I've been taking for granted the sacrifice that you made on my behalf. Maybe your heart's filled with gratitude. God in the flesh Jesus took your place and he was and he went down so that you could go free maybe you're like one of those thieves on the cross that found salvation in his last minutes Today would be a great day for salvation, for you to quit striving, quit trying to earn your acceptance, quit trying to prove your worth, and step across the line of faith and fall into the arms of Jesus who's waiting there for you.
In just a moment, we're going to sing. Maybe our response is just to sing with a heart of gratitude for all that God has done. God, I love you. I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for this moment. I thank you that you gave us an example of what real, true love looks like. There's no greater love than a man that gives his life for his friends. Lord, some of us in here, we've had a a hard year. Some even had a hard life. And it's tempting that in the moments of difficulty, we don't see you working. It's tempting for us to wonder if you're even there. But I pray that this symbol of the cross would be a reminder to us that you're close, that you're near, that the extent of your love is what held you on the cross. And as we take communion in just a minute, as we crunch the bread up with our teeth and we're reminded of your beaten body. And as we drink the juice, we're reminded of the blood that washes us white as snow. It's also the blood that unites us as a family. So God, may your people take the steps of faith they need to take even this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.